Godzilla Pod War Hour. Uh, my name is Michael Kelly, and with us as always, Nathan Bear. Thank you very much, Mike. Glad to be here. We're here to talk about 1954's Godzilla. Yeah, or, or Big G, as we lovingly refer to him as. The, you know. the notorious Big G. Yeah. Um, yeah. What we wanted to sort of talk about over the next few weeks, why is Godzilla still as popular as he is, sort of the impact, and really kind of talk about each and every one of his film appearances, kind of break it down. Of course, before we can do that, we have to talk about the original film that is, in fact, Godzilla. But so, quick uh, quick background, I am uh, a big Godzilla fan, been watching his movies since I was a, a young kid, and Nate, I, I assume you have been as well. Yes, yes, yes. Big, big since I was a kid. It, uh, Destroyed many friendships, relationships, yeah. potential marriage. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all for the love of, of this wonderful lizard thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not, yeah, not worth it, I would say. I mean, you could have had a, a, a good life. Yes, you know? yes, a very good life. But, and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's like the mythological uh, pattern. You know, there's that call to action. And some are called overseas to fight a war. Others are called to... Uh, write the next great novel. I was called to stay in my room and watch movies from another country dubbed in English. That, that was my calling. And I think we both, we both succeeded at this calling. And we're, we're here, we're back from the field with our report. <laughs> uh, so, you, you can't talk about Godzilla without talking about first King Kong. Because yes. there really would not be in many ways, not only Godzilla, but any of the giant monster films without King Kong. So, real quick, 1933, there's this movie that comes out. It's called King Kong. It comes out during the Depression. This is before FDR has sort of kind of reinvigorated the country with uh, funds from the New Deal, and people are still, you know, very, very broke. They don't have money, but somehow... People, they see this movie, King Kong, and it transports them so entirely to a different world that they are shelling out millions of dollars in 1933. And have you ever seen any of these ads, like newspaper clipping ads from when King Kong was out? I don't think so. It's fascinating because it's like they directly address like the New Deal in it, and it's like... 500,000 pre-stimulus, you know, dollars or whatever. <laughs> it's an amazing film. Um, it's it's was the equivalent of a Jurassic Park or, or an Avatar when it was released. You can still watch it. It's incredibly entertaining. Of course, it's made with stop-motion animation techniques. Yeah, that is, uh, for those of you who don't know, that is uh, a form of uh, three-dimensional animation using miniatures, moving them frame by frame to create the illusion actual movement, which is what people in the 1930s just loved. That is like how you get people, that's how you make money. Yes, indeed. People actually thought that there was a a real gorilla. Yeah. They thought that King Kong was a real animal that they had found and somehow like trained and, you know, they had filmed all of this with his participation Mm -hmm. or like the trainer, you know, coached him to do all these things. And um, so people were absolutely taken by it and it, it was it made a huge impact around the world immediately there was 
I mean, the same year there was the sequel, Son of Kong. Yes, with uh, most of the same cast. Most of the same cast. Um, Fay Ray is not in attendance. No, but you do have uh, Jack Arnold and uh, Noble Johnson as the chief yeah. of... Um... The Skipper and Carl Denham yeah. are back. Yeah. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting, the plot. Yeah. Uh, it's just because Carl Denham has been sued by everyone who was killed <laughs> yeah. by King Kong's, um, <laughs> King Kong's, you know, massacre or yeah. whatever. So he's completely broke, and debt- debtors are trying to, to to track him down or whatever. And yeah, and he, he finds the the uh, skipper of the Norwegian barge that he yeah. briefly mentions in the first one. Yeah, and then we actually get to meet him, and he, he he's not cool at all. He's actually lame, unlike Godzilla. 1954, which is totally cool. Yeah. Uh, very, very cool. I you know, could talk about Son of Kong tragically for an hour. Yes. This is where I'm at in my life. <laughs> but we have to move on. Yes. So, yes, King Kong comes out. It's followed almost immediately, maybe or maybe not, by what could be considered the first kaiju film ever. And this is uh, King Kong Goes to Edo. Yes. What, what, what do we know about this film? First, what we know is is that it's lost. Right. It, you know, the print, it's gone. There is a poster, a poster of the film somewhere. You can look it up online. There's a picture of the yes. poster. There's we actually don't know what the poster, poster. Yes. There, there's a some picture point, of the poster. At some point, yeah. took a picture of the poster. poster. <laughs> for, for, for shits and giggles, because, you know. Uh, but that supposedly came around 1939. One source I read said that it was probably actually a silent film because there was very few independent production in Japan at the time, and this would have been an independent film. Uh, and most of those films in Japan were silent. From what we can tell, and I've seen, I've seen the picture of the poster, mm-hmm. it is what appears to be the first usage ever of, of a man in a suit. Yes. In Japan, yes. as a giant monster, and that is, is was the technique of choice. And so this was 1939, yeah. so obviously predating everything. Yeah. It is lost, and there, there's some theories that when Japan was destroyed... In World War II, people, they know that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, of course, completely destroyed by the, uh, by the bombs, um, the atomic bomb, but... Also, many of their most important cities were just straight up ransacked and burned. Yeah. Osaka was burned to the ground. Tokyo was firebombed. firebombed. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They lost so much. Um, and not just of their ancient culture, but of, of... I mean, that would have been only a few years prior to the war, you yeah. know, 39. And so the, the, the belief is that, you know, wherever the film studio was that had the, had the prints was just destroyed, yeah. so it's, it, you know, it's lost. There's a statistic from Donald Ritchie, who uh, sadly passed away uh, earlier this year, uh, being 2013, for those of you who are listening to this in the future. Uh, <laughs> Donald Ritchie mentioned that a uh, good 90-plus percent of Japanese films before 1946 were destroyed due to the war, bad preservation, as well as the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. You know, just so many... Events happened, and it was like, okay, well, it's gone. Let's move on. Um, right. So that's uh, the, the tragic chapter in uh, the preservation of Japanese movies up to this point. Don't be fooled if you're listening to this and you type in King Kong Goes to Edo on YouTube. There is some uh, disingenuous uh, ninny, Rostabout, Von Druk, 
it was created a, a, a forgery of like 40 seconds of footage uh, from this film. The first thing that sticks out as a sore thumb is that the monster in this, who's supposed to be Kong, looks absolutely nothing like the the monster in the picture from the poster. Mm. So that's kind of a clear giveaway. Also, I think, I, I can't remember, but it's it's something incredibly obvious. Like he's wearing like a wristwatch or something. Just like, it's it's just like, it's obvious, obviously filmed like a year ago. The guy just put it up on YouTube. And like, oh, I found this in my backyard in Wisconsin or whatever, you know. And people are rightly calling him out on it. And he's just like, why would I go to all the trouble of doing this? And it's like, well, that's because that's what crazy people do. So yes, yes. The, that, footage, that. that footage is fake. The, as far as we can tell, the film is completely lost. So that's pretty much it on the giant monster front. Of course, you know, in the 30s, 32, it's when you get Dracula and Frankenstein, both yeah. released in America. And the Universal Monsters basically reigned completely supreme for the next 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until the 50s that you get in 1952 or 1953 there's a re-release of King Kong. Yes. Because again, this is all pre-internet, pre... I mean, obviously pre-internet, but pre-home video, pre-Super 8. Yeah. There was no... You could not watch a film other than just going and seeing it in the theater. So there was several generations that had grown up who had never seen King Kong and... uh, well, they got their chance in 1953. And it made bank. It made serious bank. Uh, that monkey went went bananas at the box office. Yes. People were still as, as taken away by it. So you've got King Kong being re-released. And also, around the same time, you have the release of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. The special effects by the late, great uh, Ray Harryhausen. That's correct who was an apprentice of Willis O'Brien on King Kong. Willis O'Brien was the special effects genius who pioneered, amongst other things, all types of rear projection, matte painting, split-screen techniques. He's basically the father of modern-day special effects. So, um, yeah, Harryhausen, an apprentice of Willis O'Brien, he does the effects for Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. That comes out in 53, as does the re-release of King Kong, which cleans up at the box office. That leads to... Well, uh, there's a producer named uh, Tomiyuki Tanaka. I apologize to those if I'm uh, pronouncing that incorrectly, but uh, I believe it is pronounced Tomiyuki Tanaka. It was a producer at Toho Company, and uh, Toho was a studio formed in the late 30s, uh, originally known as PCL, Photochemical Laboratory. And post-war, they were, of course, naturally looking for material to uh, film because Japan, like the United States, is very nationalistic about their films. They go to see Japanese movies. They love their films. Well, Mr. Tanaka was apparently in Indonesia trying to work on a Japanese-Indonesian co-production. Toho, around the same time, had been working with Hong Kong, making a few productions there, some in color. So this was a chance to also reach out to another country they had previously been at war with. Unfortunately, the Indonesians didn't feel too friendly towards Mr. Tanaka, so uh, he, and this is how the legend goes, he was flying back from Indonesia and was looking at the water below, and somehow 
spooked enough by it to imagine a monster coming out. And this along with the fact that there had been nuclear testing around the Bikini Atoll, there had been some tainted fish, and, uh, you know, pretty oh, much yes, the, the Cold nuclear War... testing, yes. of which the stock footage is utilized in uh, the 1998 Godzilla. Yes, yes. Which we will discuss on this program. Yes. You were hoping we would ignore it, like the stepchild that some people believe it to be. Mm-hmm. We will not. No. But, uh, yes, continue. So, he, see, he sees it, and he sees the water, he imagines a, a head of a monster, and at that point... He didn't know what the monster was going to be, just any sea monster. Yes, and uh, here's where it gets interesting. Um, uh, the special effects guru, the, basically the Willis O'Brien of Toho, was a man named E.J. Subaraya, who during the war had done special effects for propaganda films. A popular one was I Bombed Pearl Harbor, where they used an actual miniature set of Pearl Harbor and had miniature planes that dropped miniature bombs with miniature explosions, but all he made it convincingly look. In fact, it was reported that U.S. inspectors watching some of these propaganda films thought it was actual stock footage of the bombing of Pearl Harbor from the airplane's point of view. I didn't know that. So, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. I get my information from sketchy sources, so uh, if I'm if I'm lying, well then uh, just you know enjoy the rest. Yeah, this was a bag lady at the bus stop. Yeah, do all yeah, of this. yeah. That's fine. Uh. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Subaraya had seen King Kong. Yes, and the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, I believe. Most likely. And he's like, "Let's do this." Yeah. Why uh, can't we do this? An original idea was possibly an octopus, which uh, was later utilized in Godzilla vs. King Kong, uh, a lovely marriage of the two genres, but uh, we will, of course, talk about that later. Yeah. But there were many thoughts floating around of a monster attacking. The idea started floating around and eventually came to a man named Shiro Honda. Shiro Honda was a contracted director at Toho. And he was... Friends, he had come through the program with Kurosawa. Kurosawa, yes. yes. They both they were both the assistant directors on a film for PCL called Avalanche, which is a terrible movie by a really great director. <laughs> the and movie itself is terrible. And strangely does not contain an avalanche. Yes, there's no avalanche. <laughs> it's about an emotional avalanche, which is pretty un avalanche to say the least. False it's a, advertising, yeah, it's, I'd say. It's about a bad marriage, and uh, you know, the husband and the, the wife is innocent and pure, and the husband is upset that she isn't kinky enough. And this is, of course, I mean, 1936 kink. There's only so much you can go with that. But the point is, that was the <laughs> beginning of those two uh, working as assistant directors for a man named Mikio Naruse, who we'll get to later. Shira Honda had also been fighting in the war with China uh, during the Second World War, what was known as the Sino-Japanese War. And he had come back and, of course, uh, was back working at Toho. So he was selected to be the director of this film. Was this a coveted project? Were people, like, debating over it? Was it, like, a big thing coming down the pipeline? Or was it just, like, was it, you know, people trying to sweep it under the rug and they, it was thrown to him? You know, what was the... I, it was my understanding that it was, it, was a, it was a huge budget at the time because 
when they finally did get the go-ahead from Toho, it was it was one of the largest special effects budgets to ever be permitted to a single film. Right, and this is right after World War II. This is right after the end of the American occupation and just kind of at the beginning of the great turnaround where Japan's economy suddenly started flourishing. Right. Um, but this is at the early years of that. It's just funny to me that it's like some of the stigmas for Godzilla are just like cheap, poorly made, which certainly some of the latter installments absolutely oh, yes. fall under that category. But like the first one... You had the top guys at the studio. You had the largest special effects budget ever for one of their productions. They worked very hard on it, and we'll uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. But right now, we are going to have our first break. Let's do it. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Now, let's have it, Steve. What about this monster story of yours? Well, it's big and terrible. toward the city's main line of defense. 300,000 volts of electricity strung around the city as a barrier. I can hardly believe what has just happened. Now it seems Tokyo has no defense. saying a prayer, George. Prayer for the whole world. Steve Martin signing off from Tokyo, Japan. And with that, we're, we're back at it. So, they, they get the idea... It starts to get some momentum. We're going to make our own version of King Kong, except it's going to be about a sea monster and that attacks a city, much as Kong attacks New York at the, at the end of that film. But they don't know what it's going to be. They make a decision to have it be a combination of a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a Stegosaurus. Yes. They wanted the, the spine of a Stegosaurus, just to give it a little extra dimension, right. so it's not one specific creature. Right. You know, it's got a it's it's kind of a dragon, it's kind of a dinosaur, it, you know, it's got lots to it. The name Godzilla, which of course is not what they were calling it at all. They were calling calling because the film isn't Godzilla over there, it's Gojira. Gojira, I believe, is a combination of the Japanese words for whale and gorilla. That's what I've heard, and there are many rumors. They interviewed Mrs. Honda, Mr. Honda's wife, who said that it was just a name that they picked up. Another source mentioned that there was like a contest, and then another source mentioned that there was some, you know, D-bag working at Toho. <laughs> they all called Gojira, so they thought, hey, let's name the monster out of, uh, you know, yeah. after him. 
And yeah, if that's show. true, then that guy deserves millions of dollars yeah. in in back pay. Yeah. So they get the name. Mm-hmm. Gojira. Yes. And they are a go for Gojira. Yes. One of the interesting things about about Godzilla is that like his look has always sort of been changing and his face is always changing from movie to movie. And and originally they were keeping far closer to the idea that he was sort of this dinosaur or whatever in suspended animation and he had literally been scarred by the nuclear bomb that woke him up. And the initial design was he was horribly scarred. He looked like Freddy Krueger because his like his face was all sort of mangled and stuff because like he'd been burned by the bomb. Which yeah. I thought was really sort of a cool idea and definitely went along with you know what has been accepted as his origin. Yeah, it's key to note that they wanted they did not want it to be a guy in a suit. They wanted to do the King Kong stop motion animation technique, but. The amount of money that they had, it would have taken somewhere in the neighborhood of like seven years to make it or something like that. And they were like, no, 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 you've got to have this movie ready to go in like nine months. Meanwhile, Kurosawa, who we mentioned before, was directing his epic uh, Seven Samurai, which uh, brought Toho to bankruptcy, I believe, uh, twice. Uh, (laughs) Or, you know, they had or at least they had to stop funding the movie twice, at, at which points he would go out fishing and doing other activities saying, well, they put too much money in, so they're not going to cancel it. So, <laughs> Kurosawa is kind Kur- of... A, Kurosawa would do that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he kind would, of a pimp he, like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he would know? just go out... Exactly. He would go out on Toho's bankroll. He would go to a casino and just be gambling blackjack. Like, aren't you... Aren't you two years behind on Samurai? It's like, yeah, well, they put too much money into it. So, yeah. you know, if I go down, the whole studio and the whole film industry goes down with me. So, you know... Yeah. So Kurosawa is really a Bond villain. So uh, hit me, sir. Yeah. You have you have eighteen. I song, I strongly suggest you stay. Hit me. Twenty eight. The house wins. Oh well. Let's go for another round. Uh, so again, that's beloved master filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, yeah. gambling addict and uh, lunatic. Yes, yes. So Toho so is they working. Go, they go, yeah, yeah. So they 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 can't do stop motion. So they have to go with the man in a suit. Man in a suit, which was uh, very difficult. And devastating. Yeah. I want to dispel this right now. It wasn't like out of the gate, they're like, oh, it'll just be a man in a suit. No yeah. one will notice. Yeah. You know, they'll never figure that out. That was not the case at all. No. It, it, it was, the, they knew that people would instantly be able to tell it was a, a dude in a suit. And they tried, they fought tooth and nail to not have that happen because... They wanted the movie to be taken seriously. They didn't want it to be a joke. They wanted it to be on the level of King Kong. And they wanted to make money. They wanted to make money. They wanted it to be this huge thing. And so it was extremely begrudgingly, and I've even heard the language uh, devastated, that that Subaraya was just like, after he found out that they're like, okay, we're going to go with the man in the suit thing, he was just like, it was something that he had to work through emotionally because he was so... He felt the challenge would be nearly insurmountable to make an effective movie with a guy in a suit and not have it be anything but a laughing stock. So that was the challenge of this production, and every decision was made to sort of combat that 
giant handicap. So they started production and they started designing the suit. They had to figure out a way to make this thing look menacing as well as fit a man in the suit. It had to be mobile enough to look real at the same time. It had to accommodate a physical man in a physical suit. And they had some ways to work around this because there's the suit that the man, the full suit that the actor would be in. There was half a suit made from one of the ones that the, didn't work. Yeah, that the, was just the legs. The prototype suit. Mm-hmm. I think the first time the guy got into the prototype suit, he could barely move. Yeah. Like, they said, all right, you know, walk forward three feet or whatever. And the guy just sort of, he tried to move and nothing happened inside the suit. Because yeah. it was made out of like, just... Foam rubber and bamboo. Yeah, yeah. It was like bamboo and like chicken wire and foam rubber that had cured. And it had cured so hard that it was basically like cement. So the guy was trying to get it to move and it just was not happening. And it was a, it was a real struggle. They basically they made it look too good. Yeah. And they hadn't thought about... Like, a guy has to actually be able to perform inside of this thing. Mm. So, the you know, the skin is much thicker. It's a lot more detailed. And, yeah, the guy, he moved about a foot and a half and then just passed out. Just yeah. collapsed. Being inside the suit was not was not a pleasant experience. No. Uh, studio, you know, black and white film and inside a studio uh, lights back then. Lights still are. Very, very hot, very, very dangerous halogens. They have caused numerous injuries. The actor actually had to drain the suit of his sweat. Right. He lost a significant amount of weight just being Godzilla. And then the suit itself, he could pretty much only work the arms and the legs. So to get around this, they had, as we mentioned before, the leg, the uh, a suit that was only half a suit. Right, that's what they did with yeah. the original suit. They cut it in half. Mm-hmm. And they, they kept the legs. They also had a miniature head that could do things like bite buildings and, you know, I believe wiggle its ears and open its eyes. That way, one spliced together, he looks like a completely animated living being. Yeah. And uh, I really... There's this cool effect to the original movie. And that is that because they use a number of different techniques, they use, of course, the guy in the suit the majority of it but they also use a puppet for his upper half and some of the the cutaway shots where you can just see sort of the city skyline and then you see him sort of roaming over it that's a puppet he looks different in almost every setup you know he looks radically different in every angle and every time you see him whether there's shadows whether there's the way he's filmed you can never get a clear idea of exactly what he looks like you know it's always sort of changing so it's this weird sort of have your cake and eat it too thing that just works for the original movie because of course if you take a movie like alien for example Mm -hmm. ridley scott had to work overtime on not showing the alien because he knows it would just look like a guy in a suit yeah so you know what you do is you cut away from it you just suggest it you know you just sort of have it there it goes in it goes out you can't really show it. Now, in contrast, they show Godzilla a ton in this movie. But, again, 
because it's all these different techniques that they were forced to use, you never you, you never get bored with sort of his static look because there is no static look. He, he you know, it's hard to tell what his eyes look like in this movie. Like I can't really describe his eyes mm-hmm. because they're different from puppet to suit to you know. It's like he he looks. It's like he's he's changing. It's like he's mutating as the movie's going on. Mm-hmm. You know. And through the magic of editing, it makes him look more animated, more real. It's making up for the fact that it can't be as flamboyant as, say, a stop-motion animation production. Um, so it, it's these, you know, ways of finding... that That's the way of completing the challenge that uh, Mr. Tsuburai had. So, yeah, they, uh, they shot it. Then they had to get someone to do the music. Yeah, so the music... That was by Mr. Akira Ifabuke. Ah, yes. So, who had uh, previously worked with uh, Kurosawa on a film known as The Quiet Duel, after which they never worked together again. They uh, just were not meant for each other. However, uh, in 1953, I believe, Mr. Uh, Ifabuke did work with another director from the same uh, generation as uh, Mr. Honda and Mr. Kurosawa, and that was... Kon Ichikawa, and they made a film known as The Burmese Harp, with the film of which it scored. The score actually sounds a lot like Godzilla's score, despite the fact that it's about <laughs> a Japanese platoon in the uh, last months of World War II in Burma. We don't want to give the impression that Ifube was some slouch. He was not given weeks to meticulously write out this score and, you know, kind of test it and fill in stuff. It's my understanding that the scores for these films, the, the, the composer is given a rough outline of what the scene is and a rough length, and he'll compose that, and then they'll just fit it onto the picture, not, not, not the other way around, as, as you would sort of understand with newer films, where... You, the composer is literally looking at the screen of playback of the film and compose mm. to that. It's they just didn't have time to do that, right? Right. What would happen was this is, and this uh, Kurosawa's script supervisor, uh, Miss Nagami, wrote about uh, scoring in the fifties for Rashomon, which was made by a different studio. But the idea is that the they show the rushes to the composer. And The Rushes, as we know, is not the complete movie. So it's cut together basically how they think the movie's going to go. And then there's blanks with like different colors suggesting the mood of that specific shot or that sequence that isn't ready yet. So they're going to say, okay, so this is going to be calm. And then violence. Then calm again. Then happy. Then, you know. So this is basically what they had to work with. And... Kurosawa having the bigger budget in 1954, of course, is getting a little better treatment when it comes to the music. However, what Mr. Ifabuke has done is created a very iconic soundtrack because it was used for... The music used for this film was used in later films, almost religiously. You really can't have a Godzilla film without some part of the original score incorporated into the film. It's really like he's he's written the score 
and he's just he makes revisions to it every time and he's trying to perfect it and you get the sense that he never quite perfects it but he's always trying to sort of tinkering with it but he's just revisiting the same stuff and of course obviously adding new stuff to it but I love the score for the original because it's just the way they recorded it sounds very kind of rough and you can you can hear the the instruments and things sort of not necessarily clanging about or whatever it's not some amateur thing but you can pick up little things like you can hear a drumstick being set down and you can hear sort of the 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 room tone of where they were recording and uh it gives sort of this kind of intimate strangely intimate feel to the score even though the scope of the movie is just so all-encompassing and huge it's sort of a paradox First of all, can you remember the first time you saw Godzilla or like where you were? I did the first Godzilla film I saw was Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, which was so bloody and violent it nearly turned me off Godzilla. And yet I was so I, I became an addict immediately. I I just had to see it again. I was so terrified by it, and yet I needed to see more. So I eventually saw Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mothra, and then I ended up buying the DVD collection, which had the Raymond Burr version of the 1954 Godzilla film. So that was my first window into the original. Later, I ended up seeing the original Japanese version at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. Mm, Um, Sounds like a cool place. I should 
check that place out sometime. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the first time I saw Godzilla, <laughs> I remember sort of being shocked at how dark it was. And this is just the Raymond Burr 1955 Godzilla King of the Monsters, sort of being shocked at the just how dark the tone was and saw a kind of how how doomed the whole thing was because there's a there's a change I guess for somehow if if you guys aren't familiar with the plot of Godzilla and are listening to this basically what happens are uh, a series of uh, fishing boats off the coast of Japan start sinking somewhere I think it's like ultimately it's like twenty or thirty ships sink we see the first couple. It's sort of the beginning of the film is a montage of these ships just sort of being eviscerated by this weird, ambiguous kind of wall of fire. They're wondering what's what's wiping out all these people, and there's some some of the survivors wash ashore on this island. There's this old guy sitting up on the beach, and he's like, he's like you know, 110 years old and smoking his pipe, and he's just like, oh, it's it's yeah, it's got the Godzilla. It's Godzilla. Yeah. That's that's what it is. Like, yeah. what, are you, what are you talking about, old man? Yeah, and yeah. It's just like F you, F you. This is 1954. Yeah. Women can vote now. Can F vote. you. Elvis Presley's going to be on the scene here in a, a year and a half. We're going to have rock and roll. What are you talking about, old man? And he's just like, nah, nah. You young people don't understand. You know, back in the ancient times, there, you know, we had. A deity that we worshipped, his name was Godzilla, and in the years when the crops were bad, we would sacrifice a girl on the altar to appease him so he wouldn't come and destroy us all, and then the crops would be good the next year, and that's all yeah. this is. Like, we've just become too boastful or whatever, and now he's coming back. They investigate. Like, yes. One, one of the fishing companies send their top guys there to this island to investigate, yes. and while they're there, Godzilla sort of makes his first appearance on the sly. He's behind a, a mountain or something. And that promotes a, a yet another expedition. And yes. on this on this second expedition, um, they, where they bring a paleontologist. Yes, played by Takashi Shimura. Takashi Shimura. Who, uh, the same year, starred in Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Uh, so th- this was just you know gambling money for him. You know yeah. he just <laughs> yeah. those few extra bucks. Is... Him and Kurosawa will go out on their five day long uh, sake <laughs> and blackjack bitches. Um, yeah, you know, I was just like, like I, I gotta I gotta pay off a few bills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they um, they're there on the island, and finally, about I don't know half an hour into the movie, you get a look at. Godzilla, and he's behind a hill, and it's the first time you ever see him. You hear him, you hear his, his monster call, as it were. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Godzilla's roar came from just taking a leather glove and sliding it down a, a base. Yes, yeah. yes. And then they just adjusted the tone. Yeah. Uh, manually. So they see him there, and uh, the doctor goes back to the mainland. He goes back to the, the Diet building in Tokyo, the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. He, in a, in a very sort of realistic, logic-based scene, he says, look, there's this monster on this island. He's the one who's been sinking the ships. He's 50 meters tall. This is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, at that point, it's, it's turned over to some of the groups involved with governing uh, the community. And it's the, you hear the politicians argue about it. You hear representatives from uh, the Citizens Bureau and all this. And the politicians are like, well, we can't tell, we can't tell the general public because it will create a panic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll shut down the infrastructure. Then there'll be little, you know, whereas at the same time, the, um, the Citizens Bureau is like, we have to tell everyone immediately. We have to evacuate immediately. Mm-hmm. If we don't tell them exactly what's going on, they won't leave. And how dare you suggest that we not tell them the truth? They have the right to know. You're, you know, if this thing comes, it'll be certain death. Blah blah blah. And so they get into this huge fight, and they start infighting. And it's very realistic, as realistic as a, a movie like this can be. It's, it sort of seems like a lot of thought was put into like, okay, if someone did come back and was like, okay, there's a monsters are real. There's a giant one coming. This, this scene where they fight it out was really cool and very unique to this movie because there's nothing this logical in any other <laughs> where they actually talk about it. Um, um, meanwhile, there's actually a cute love triangle yes. uh, going throughout the film. There is Dr. Sarazawa who has an eye patch. Yes, but he's not evil. Yes, yes, he, he is it, not. He lost it in the war, in yes. World War II. He, he, at some point, he lost his eye. He, he lost his eye, and uh, he, he is... Uh, he is uh, Mary or yeah, betrothed to uh, Emiko, Emiko, who is the uh, daughter of Takashi Samura's character. But she is busy shtupping, uh, and that's an implied shtupping. All uh, implied. O- Ogata, Ogata, who right. is a sexy man from Maritime Insurance Co. or whatever it is. Uh, he, you know, basically uh, works yeah. salvaging ships, which is how this actor, yeah. who plays Ogata, Ogata has been in. Most of the key Godzilla movies, he just sort of shows up when it when it matters. Yeah, yeah. Which is to say, he's in Godzilla vs. Mothra, he's in Destroy All Monsters, he's in Godzilla Final Wars, hmm. and he's going to be in, in the Gareth Edwards 2014 Godzilla. Other than that, he can't be bothered. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so he's a pretty key figure in the films. He's still alive, still looks basically exactly like he did in like 1980. So like, yeah. That's, I, I tell you, you know, when, when you get John Crawford's cosmetic surgeon, you know, you really... <laughs> Sky's the limit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Godzilla, they they dive bomb him. They, they launch all these attacks into the sea. You know, cute montage of uh, the ocean just getting pounded with missiles and stuff. And they, classic monster movie style, they're like, oh, well... We leveled everything we can <laughs> at into the part of the ocean he might be in. <laughs> we have no proof of any kind that you know this was effective, so he must be dead. Yes. Let's all forget about it and go back to normal. Which, of course, makes Takashi Shimura's character, Dr. Yamane, very unhappy because yeah. uh, he wants to study he Godzilla. He wants to study Godzilla. He, uh, he wants to get to know it. Yeah. You know? He, you know. he wants to say, he's like, there's this, there's this dinosaur... This might be the only time we ever see something like this. Let's study it. Yeah. Let's not destroy it. This is totally unprecedented. Let's study this thing instead of just killing it. So he's he's pretty he's pretty sad for the rest of the movie. But then as luck or or maybe destiny would have it, Godzilla survived and he's just so in love with Mr. Yamane that he decides to come to Tokyo and blow the living shit out of it. Just just yeah. owns Tokyo I mean, just 
just burns it down. Yeah. Uh, Tokyo's and, wiped out, basically. Yeah. It's interesting, because the, the major editing change in Godzilla King of the Monsters, as opposed to the Japanese Gojira, is the... And it's, it's pretty f- effective and, and pretty well done, uh, strangely enough. In addition to the scenes that, uh, that they filmed of actor Raymond Burr of uh, Perry Mason fame, sort of serving as an idiot's guide through the major scenes in the plot. Yeah. There's one other thing that I really like about it, and that is that it, it, the start of the movie, the American version again, is this grim assessing of the devastation that Godzilla has wrought. Yeah. Onto Tokyo, and it is like nothing has escaped. It's just it looks like an atomic bomb yeah. has been dropped. I mean, it's completely eviscerated. It's very glum. The music is extremely downbeat, and so it just sets up this feeling of inescapable doom for the rest of the movie until it actually happens. Where it's like, oh, we've seen, we know what's coming, we see what's hap- going to happen, and then it happens, and it's you know sort of fulfilling that. That's not in the original cut of the movie. But, and when I saw that, I was shocked because mm. it worked so well in the American version Yeah, that I just assumed it was something that the Japanese people did because it's actually effective and, yeah. and it's not a complete joke. But, uh, but with the Shiro Honda, uh, who had a very documentary-like a style, in fact, I believe it was quoted in a, a book that uh, had a little blurb about him that uh, his wife said that he really wanted like probably deep down to do documentaries and because of which uh, the movies he made both monster and otherwise uh, his war films as well have this very italian neorealism like look you know just very gritty and very real and if you look at the scenes post godzilla devastation it looks like an actual documentary that this is actually happening so his work with the live members of the cast definitely have this sense of realistic uh, devastation, which helps yeah. uh, juxtaposed with Godzilla. It helps play into the realism of the film. So, Godzilla wipes out Tokyo, kills a couple, at least a few thousand people. We never get the precise numbers. Thousands are dead. Thousands more lay and are injured. Emiko reveals that Sirozawa has this super weapon, the oxygen destroyer, which is capable of killing Godzilla once and for all. Sirozawa is hesitant to use it. He quite realistically is afraid that once the world is aware of the Oxygen Destroyer, they will use him to create more of them and then use them to basically as mutually assured destruction or they, they will they will become the new atomic bomb. He will be responsible. So he's very torn as to how to proceed. And then it was only after seeing a televised broadcast of, and it looks like about 2,000 kids in, yeah. this, in this church singing that he finally, and they're singing in, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, they're covering the devastation of Godzilla. And they're, they're, it's this very sort of woeful yeah. kind of song. And it's, which, it's which sad. kind of, you know, to go along with our generation, kind of very similar to uh, what we saw post 9-11. Yeah. I mean, to Just, take it in a, in a sort of an incredibly serious direction yeah. there for a second, it, it is sort of like that. You can tell that even though this is a fantasy film, obviously real things had happened to Japan. The, the bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki less than 10 years before this movie was made. 
It was obviously still something that was in the consciousness of the people. People talk about it in the Japanese version. They say, first, my husband got killed. In Nagasaki. In Nagasaki, and now this. You know, they're, they're, they're clumping, the people are clumping it together, the two things, as if it's one continuous sort of nuclear nightmare. And um, so that's, that's very, very deliberate, clearly. One of the reasons I'm, you know, again, we've gone over the reasons why it was made, but I think one of the reasons why it hit such a chord and why it was so successful is that under the surface, people were trying to process the great trauma, the great emotional and national violence that had been done to this country. And I think that absolutely hit a chord. Yeah. In a way that a movie like, for example, Kurosawa's Drunken Angel could not where it's, it's yeah. you know, it's, or, or, or some, because it was just, it was, it wasn't ex- such an outrageously extreme thing. Yes. The nuclear bombs. Such a, such an unnecessary thing that, I mean, I don't want to get into the politics of it, whether, whether or not it was necessary for, from a strategic military standpoint. But like, um, well, like, it almost takes something as ridiculous and ludicrous as Godzilla. It's like, well, yeah, Godzilla's ludicrous, but also dropping the atomic yeah. bomb and vaporizing an entire city is also ludicrous. And there have been other films made about the nuclear bomb. There's one called uh, Children of Hiroshima, which was actually shot on location in Hiroshima when it was still being rebuilt and still dealing with uh, the repercussions of it. This had been talked about. But sometimes it does, as you mentioned, it takes a movie of such proportion to really let it sink in. And maybe it makes it more digestible. Yeah. Cause, uh, I think if you, can, if you can make it into a monster mm-hmm. that has a face and, and a body, you know, then you can begin to, to sort of deal with it in some way. That's all I can think of. Yeah. And that's why, at first, it was... It was uh, successful maybe mm-hmm. I say that conclusively like we just <laughs> like we just did some study or something we yeah. haven't no okay no. lazy yeah, just, uh, very... this is just this is all my opinion yeah. and Nate's opinion I, I actually haven't watched the movie in like I think over a year I watched it last week last, okay um, fine that's, that's no problem and uh, yeah so Sirizawa uses the oxygen destroyer he commits suicide in the process. Well, well, let's let, let's explain first. Right. That Godzilla, uh, after destroying Tokyo, is underwater right. in Tokyo Bay. So he decides to take it upon himself after he breaks down and says, "Fine, I will use this weapon of destruction to destroy Godzilla." So he and Ogata, right. the other man in the love triangle, both go down together. They both go down. They find Godzilla. They release the oxygen destroyer. Ogata goes up. Sarazawa stays, and he cuts his cord. Right. So uh, he does not want to live in a world that the oxygen destroyer exists. Or and then there's the other half of the fact that maybe he just couldn't live without Emiko. Maybe, you know there. Oh there's, yeah, I've there, never thought of that. There, there's so. Uh, I mean, there, there's. I mean, it seems from the language that it's definitely more about the oxygen destroyer, but there's also that case that, you know, maybe he feels overall in more ways than one that he does not fit in. You know, he, he does not fit into this world. You know, the, the science is perverse now. 
atomic and i think maybe in a way he represents oppenheimer you know yeah who really could not live down oppenheimer by the way who can be heard in the new teaser trailer for the 2014 godzilla yes, yes. uh quoting vishnu yes and uh vishnu uh, huge boner for that movie already uh but <laughs> enough about that so there is a definite uh, humane treatment of the characters, uh, a three-dimensionality to their emotions. And so it's not just about Godzilla, it's about the post-war years, it's about the change of tradition, just all these little details put together, which in 1954 an audience would look at and say, of course, this is us. Right. Um, the same way they looked at Seven Samurai and said, of course, this is, you know, this is a look at the past but it's really talking about us today. And then it ends with the doctor on the deck of the ship after they've seen all this and Sarah's always dead and he says, you know, what Sarah's always dead, but what if there's another Godzilla? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> which is which is what uh, if? I mean that would like, make what if this happens again? Yeah. You know, we will never it'll be it'll be indestructible. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll, like this is a one shot it was a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. And... Because now the only way to beat another Godzilla is gone. Right. The man yeah. who knows... The, the, like, this is, like, he... It's, it should be... It should be said, Sarazawa destroys right. all of his documents. He makes it so they will never be able to make another oxygen destroyer. He's the only one who knows how to do it. He destroys all of his records. So, that's it. You know, they use it to, in this one movie. It works perfectly. It yeah. kills Godzilla instantly, by the way. And, you know, the subject of how to stop Godzilla in, in the films from this point forward is just the eternal bane of the Japanese <laughs> military uh, to the extent where in some of the ones in the, in the aughts, in the 2003, 2004, uh, well, in Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, they develop a weapon where they shoot, they've got a black hole gun. Yes. Where they no longer, they don't want to destroy Godzilla because it's proven so impossible <laughs> They're like, okay, we'll just shoot a black hole at him, and if we can just take him into a different dimension, <laughs> then he'll just be gone. Yeah, and it'll be their to, problem. It'll be Ooh. the that other dimension's problem, and we won't have to deal with them anymore. That's and it doesn't work. Of yeah, it, that's it, how indestructible Godzilla is. He, he's true. like the world's worst roommate. I mean, yeah. he, he's just the, the one that doesn't pay his rent, doesn't clean his dishes. He's just that awful. So, an amazing film. We've tried to talk about it a little bit. Yes. Here in some in some small detail, scratch the surface though. We'll be back. Well, I think we should. I think we should talk about this again. Uh, maybe next week. Sounds cool. like sounds like a plan. Sounds like a good idea. There's so many Godzilla movies, ripoffs, and other films made by the same company about giant monsters blowing up various landmarks. That uh, this is just too juicy to give up. Yeah, I think this this requires some more talking. But for now, thank you for listening. Or the Godzilla Pod War Hour. I'm Michael Kelly. And I'm Nathan Bear. Cheers. Yes. Yeah. Good evening. Good evening.